Terry London is the director of the Chicago Institute for Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, and he is considered a pioneer at developing the educational approach, Rational Emotive Behavior Education, or REBE, which is based on REBT. So we're going to find out what all of this uh, letter salad is about in just a second. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to this edition of Mind Talk. And I am very pleased to welcome Terry London. Terry, welcome. Hello, Pamela. Thank you for having me on the program. It's going to be a pleasure to speak to you and let the listeners know about REBT and REBE. Well, Terry, you certainly are a prolific writer. I understand that you are the author of seven books, um, which are written for both professionals and non-professionals who are seeking information about REBT and REBE. So let's start with what in the world is REBT? Well, let me say it clearly and slowly because I know to talk quickly. It stands for Rational Emotive Behavior Training or Psychotherapy. And as you referred to me as a pioneer, I was the first generation of clinicians, psychologists, who wanted to take the basic scientific theory and the self-help strategies and apply them to mental health in public schools. And therefore, we named it Rational Emotive Behavior Education. And that's kind of a historical perspective on it. And you are, um, in addition to being an REBT practitioner, um, you're also affiliated with the Albert Ellis Institute, which, of course, is located in New York, New York. That is correct. Is that the initial, the progenitor, the developer of REBT, rational behavioral therapy, was the late great Dr. Albert Ellis, and Ellis is considered one of the three most significant influential psychologists of the 20th century and considered by historians the founder of what we generally call cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a general paradigm, and he literally started it as far as, again, theory and also application and practice. So there is a long history to the concept of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and REBT. Tell us what exactly it is. What is the approach that is taken with REBT? Well, the paradigm, to use a phrase, or the perspective, which goes back to ancient philosophers, because Alice, as in Albert Ellis, basically said with all of them, and he was very honest and very scrupulous about giving credit to people who influenced him, again, theoretically and philosophically in his practice. Well, particularly, again, in the Western world, the, excuse me, in the Western world were the uh, Stoic philosophers, particularly Epictetus, and in the Eastern world, it's the heart to bottom of the historical Buddha. Now, now that we had those names in the conversation, the famous quote of Epictetus was, men are not disturbed by events, but by the views they hold over toward those events. So in modern scientific language, what we call cognitive mediation, cognitive appraisal, and, uh, what's called constructivism, simply means, and the ancient philosophers 2,300 years saw it, is that a quote of my own, which I don't think I said from anyone, would, would be, would sum it up, is that emotion is the end result of your most passionate thinking or thoughts. That in the real world, you can't have a strong belief in your mind or your belief system without having, again, arousing not only physical change in your body, but strong emotions. You can't have strong emotion without having strong thought. But the sequencing is that most people believe the emotion comes first, but in actuality, it is the thoughts. We refer to them in RABT as a self-talk, evaluations, which can be very quick and automatic. That's why people often are not aware of them. 
or if you ask the average person, well, what were you thinking when you did X or Y? Or what were you thinking when you made yourself anxious or angry over something that happened in your life? They'll go back to what we call the A, the activate event, the situation. However, if you say, I have the details, you explain to me about what happened, but what were you thinking at that moment, or what are you thinking right now in this ever-present moment to continue to create physical stress or anxiety or depression or anger? Most people, Pamela, will say, I don't know. And that being difficult is that part of the process of cognitive behavioral education or RAPT specifically is what we call detecting the mind, uh, excuse me, thought catching, is to educate people is that there's always that step between the event and your emotional or behavioral consequence. We call it the C. And that we call the B, which basically means your automatic thoughts, your self-talk. And automatic kind of sums it up is that they are so quick and habituated that the average individual is not aware of what they're thinking when they generate those emotions or the, or the behavioral choices. And so the idea of thought catching is slow it down and show them again, not just the relationship, but specifically what they're thinking when they're unfortunately creating unhealthy emotional consequences or doing self-defeating things. So give us an example of uh, what might be an automatic thought. Um... Let's say you, well, you decide. Give, give us a, a scenario well, and then walk us through the, the ABC of it. Okay. And by the way, Pamela, it's a great question and it will be clear when I give the answer. would be one of, the, one of the most unique, or I think it's the most unique aspect of REBT, which makes it somewhat different than the other cognitive behavioral theories, is that at B, what we call the theory of muscivatory thinking, and yes, it's called muscivatory thinking, the theory of irrational thinking that human beings generate, and that was an overall term in the formal theory. And basically is that I'll clarify it, and then we'll, I'll, I'll explain an actual pragmatic happening. The premise is that in your belief system, and this would be universal, doesn't matter what language you speak or what culture you're raised in, you need to have a tendency, whatever you care about, your wishes, your wants, your preferences, your desires, you need to have a tendency to qualitatively shift those or transform them into fanatical, dogmatic, rigid, absolute demands, or necessities. And part of that explanation basically would be that I often say to, again, my students or I'm doing a group would be, is a belief in your mind, in your belief system, has the same effect on your body as an event in the world. And that's correct, it does. Because your brain, where mind emerges from, cannot tell the difference between a belief or an image in your mind's eye and an event in the world. So now let's apply that. So for example, the highest statistical phobia in the United States is public speaking. So that would be the A, the activating event. Someone's going to speak in public. And there is a possibility they could fail or do poorly. That is a possibility. But REP would say is that the possibility of failing or actually speaking in public cannot directly cause at C, which is the emotional or behavioral consequences, any emotion at all. Because in between the A and your emotions is B, is your belief system, or your self-talk. And... Let's run an experiment. If I basically went to the podium thinking very, very strongly, I prefer and want to do well for many good reasons and pragmatic reasons to succeed, but I stuck qualitatively to a preference. I want to, but I don't have to. I desire to do well, but I don't need. It's not oxygen or water. I could bear failure, even though it would be unpleasant to fail, and I could still accept myself even if I fail or fall short of speaking well or people accept me for what I shared with them, I really believe that I would generate what an RBT would be called healthy concern, passion, and determination to do well, which doesn't guarantee I'll have a great performance, but raises the probability that I'll, again, maximize my ability, 
window not to advertise my performance. But all we have to do, according to REPT, which I think is valid, it's been validated, is if I go from saying, oh, no, no, I just don't want and prefer to do well, that makes sense, but I absolutely must, and I can't bear the thought of failing as I mustn't fail. And it would be catastrophic to fail in front of all these people who might think less of me, because failing and their rejection would prove, again, that life isn't worth living and or that I'm an adequate worth is no good. I'll generate what an REPT is called ego anxiety, which is based on the premise that I must do as well as I prefer and win people's approval. And if I don't, it is unbearable, a catastrophe, and proves I'm an adequate worth is no good. Then you create tremendous amounts of physical stress and anxiety, and I probably won't speak well or sabotage my performance. Often, which is another unique aspect of REBT, and I won't get along with it about this, is that Ellis wrote a book called The Case Against Self-Esteem. I wrote my own book called The Case Against Self-Esteem because things like social anxiety, public speaking anxiety, performance anxiety, test-taking anxiety, normally revolves around basically one's total self-acceptance, which is what self-esteem is, and a demand that I must perform at a certain level or I must win people's approval and keep it to accept myself at all. So even when you do well, you might feel great about yourself but you're very likely to feel anxious and nervous because you have no guarantee you'll do as well next time or better as you think you must. So it's the emotional roller coaster. We try to educate people to have what we call unconditional self-acceptance, that there is no rational or sane way to evaluate one's humanity or, again, totalness, but you do take a look at your actions, deeds, and performances so that you can improve or continue again to uh, learn from mistakes that you make but not make that illegitimate jump to condemn or to even, again, inflate oneself for doing good or bad. So it, 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 it sounds like really what you're talking about is sort of helping people to shift what is often the automatic I'm not to the automatic, to an automatic I can. Yes. However, again, is that most people, if you ask them, well, if you weren't creating anxiety and dread about making mistakes, how well would you do? And the average person would say, well, I'd probably do well under those circumstances if it's playing a sport, giving a speech. But going back to the theory of musting, mustivatory thinking, is that this thing with power of this, if a belief in your mind has the same effect in your body as an event in the world, and you go to a podium thinking, I just don't want to do well, and if I don't, it would be unpleasant but bearable, and life would, life would still be worth living too. I absolutely, fanatically, dogmatically must do as well as I want. And if I don't, either I think it would be catastrophe, life would not be worth living, not just unpleasant at the moment. And that would prove that intrinsically that I'm inferior or worthless, you generate tremendous amounts of anxiety and you tend to sabotage your performance. So an REBT would get the person to become aware that the public speaking does not directly make them just an event feel any emotion, healthy or unhealthy, and then get into their belief system, their self-talk with them, and then ask what we call disputing questions, such as, well, if unfortunately you had the guts and courage to try and you fall short of your goal or do extremely poorly, whatever the reason, would that prove your inadequate worth is no good to you, and would you have to condemn and hate yourself for the rest of your life, even if people won't forgive you? And that's a mouthful, but another unique aspect of RBT, and you do it differently with children because they think differently than adults, that we call D, which is called disputing strategies, which are somewhat Socratic, a very Socratic in nature. We change your monologue into a dialogue, and you start to question not that you have these beliefs or these self-talks, but how to challenge them in a way that makes sense to you so that either you don't take them seriously 
or you basically start to calm yourself down and create a new way of thinking to deepen your conviction and more rational thoughts, which, which we call the eat the new effect. Terry, and let that me. That was a mouthful, I know. That was a mouthful. Go so ahead. we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're we're going to continue because I'd like to hear a little bit more about how the work with children uh, is different from the work with adults, folks. Great. This is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk, and I am very pleased to have Terry London uh, on the line with us. Terry is the director of the Chicago Institute for Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. We'll be right back. Terry, tell us more about the work with children. I think many people have at least heard uh, about REBT, but tend to think about it as as working with adults. So talk to us about using this process with children. Okay. Let me clarify two things, and then we'll get into, again, specifics of it. Children below the age of approximately 8, 9, or 10 qualitatively think differently because they are in concrete operations, it simply means they think concretely, not abstractly. And as development goes on, is that when they hit oh, around 10, 11, or 12, and they reach formal operations, according to Piaget, which means they can think about their thoughts and test them against logic and evidence, which is the highest level of what's called cognitive development, not IQ levels, but again, how you process your life events. And so if I would ask a five-year-old child, if I had to ask it very gently, well, I can understand why you want your mom to act a certain way, but prove that she absolutely must act the way you prefer because you want her to, is that that child will have no idea how to answer their question because they have not reached what's called formal operations to think of their beliefs as an assumption to test against evidence in the real world and logic. So therefore, when you do REBE with children below the age, approximately around 10, 8, or 9, you basically make everything concrete and visual and tactile where we have a curriculum called rough spot training. Instead of calling it the A, the activating event, B, your belief system, and C, your consequence, we want to happen in the field until we call a rough spot. And you use a balloon, and you blow the balloon up because to help a child distinguish anger and frustration is very difficult at that early age. But we basically conceptualize, again, would be as a rough spot is something that is rough and unpleasant and hard. And then we teach what's called the self-talk rule. The way you think is the way you feel. So therefore, not problem-solving how to influence the world quite yet, but how to internally, with an internal locus, control your most response to anything that happens, and then either you can accept it and deal with it emotionally, psychologically, or make an effort to change it. But again, we're talking about children, so again, would be, let's say Johnny is rejected on the playground. Well, that's his rough spot, because rejection or disapproval is difficult for everyone, not just even a child. And then if I was working with Johnny, either one-to-one or a group, we would be teaching, and I do mean teaching the pedagogy, well, your rough spot is it happening in your life. It's happening. But how big and how rough that rough spot will be, how intensely emotionally uncomfortable you'll feel, is based on your self-talk. So the first thing we put in place is the self-talk rule is the way you think is the way you feel. So I use illustrations. And then we concretely, not abstractly, talk about what are called hot thoughts, the rational ways of thinking, busting, and cold thoughts. So, for example, if I would say to Johnny, well, if you have this belief is that it's the end of the world that I can't bear when people call me names. How big will your rough spot be? Well, Johnny would say, oh, really big. We blow the balloon up bigger to visualize that. And then we say, if you can make yourself believe 
two or three cool thoughts. Stop, take a deep breath. This is hard, but I can do it. Excuse me, I can do it. Good for me, I'm in control. If you really believe that, because the difference between a belief in your mind and emotions, how strongly you believe the belief. Remember, the most passionate thoughts lead to your emotions, which just means intensity, is that we practice with Johnny. We might even make a tape for Johnny to practice not what he's going to say to the people on the playground who name call him, but he could practice again what are called cool thoughts or coping statements. No disputing, or is the evidence that people have to treat you a certain way? Is there any evidence that the worst thing that could happen to you? Because that won't work with a child who's not reached formal operations. But a real practice and rehearsal called self-instruction training, and we get great results. And so, therefore, they start to develop, which is a very key panel idea for all of us, is what's called an internal locus of control, where the individual processes their life events where they know they don't control the world, even though they try to influence it, but moment by, me, but moment, by moment, when you think about those events is where your emotions come from. So random events and other people's behavior does not directly cause you to feel anything. That's your choice to make based on how you think about it. And that was the work of a gentleman named Julian Roeder from the 60s called an internal locus versus an external locus, which was incorporated in RBT. We try to educate everyone, and particularly the children, into having a consistent habit of an internal locus of control, that I choose my emotional destiny or my feelings based on how I think about any life event that I have to encounter, which basically is highly correlated with mental health and resiliency and the ability to cope in a healthy way. So it, it, it sounds like children and adults, for example, who experience bullying or mm-hmm. um, discrimination of any kind, with this mm-hmm. approach, it really can be very powerful and empowering. Yes, and we have the research that really validates that throughout the world, not just the United States. I had great pleasures at a manual that I co-authored with my wife. Her name is Mormon, has called Rust Spot Training how to teach emotional resiliency and emotional control to young children. It's been translated into about four or five languages with our permissions and used all over the world. And in the state of Illinois, because I do a lot of my work in the state of Illinois, there was like at least six school districts who got rid of self-esteem curriculums or bullying curriculums because they really did not work. And when they replaced it with rest by training, they got great results. And the results were not just to influence people who get verbally aggressive and bully others, but showing the individuals perpetrated on how not to disturb themselves in a healthy way or to retaliate ways to get them in difficulty. And the other research shows it works much better than those other programs. So that's got to be just wonderful for, for both you and your wife uh, that you have been able to make such a positive difference. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it would be that it's been my passion for over 40 years, and she's a uh, special ed public school teacher. So always looking for not just, again, gimmicks or some one-time, one-time strategy, but an overall pedagogy, a system that can be literally integrated in the classroom to affect as many kids as we can. Because the old adage is, like, you know, a pound of protection, a pound of, excuse me, a pound of protection is worth, again, you know what, is that why wait until children have emotional conflicts or destructive behaviors? Why not do, do it as a vaccination or as a preventative as early as we can? And it is great, great purpose in our lives to basically can promulgate that throughout the, the United States and the world. Talk about uh, smart recovery. You, you do work with um, that, I believe. Can you tell us what smart recovery is, first of all? Yes, smart recovery is an international organization which basically for free offers in groups 
There's different versions. And SMART stands for self-management and recovery training. So we don't fight and we don't, again, yell at individuals who use traditional treatment in their groups, which is obviously something like AA or NA. However, three or four principles of SMART, which initially did come from RVT, is that, one, we do not use a disease model. We do not believe addictions are diseases. They're choices that you can end up with diseases. You can end up dead if you basically put certain kind of chemicals in your body. And an addictive experience does not have to be chemicals. It can be overeating. It can be gambling or shopping, whatever it might be, which obviously are behaviors. We also educate people that they're powerful, not powerless, that you're never powerless, is that everything you do has a function and a purpose. And if you learn how to think qualitatively different because you have the ability to do that, you are very powerful. And thirdly, we use the harm reduction, which basically is that we do not choose for our participants their goal. That's up to them. And basically it could be slowing down, it could be moderating, or it can be absence. And so, therefore, again, the research shows, which I consider common sense, if you try to force one-size-fits-all treatment on someone, they might be resistant because it doesn't make sense to them or that's not their goal. Or in harm reduction, used in SMART, we don't allow, we have our educated discussions about what do you think is going to be the best for you. Do you think right now it might be better to stop for a while, figure out why you're making these poor choices? Do we have enough credible evidence for years or for months that you make very, very destructive choices and you might just be better off abstaining, and those are some of the major differences between SMART, which is offered for free to the public, and volunteers and facilitators offer their time freely, compared to what would be called traditional treatment groups such as AA or NA. You know, I'm reminded of someone I worked with many years ago who actually uh, uh, had an inpatient experience where really it was all about the AA approach which was really hard for him. But the smart recovery approach was very different and for him was a much more uh, perfect, useful fit than the AA approach, which is not saying that either one is better or worse, but that there are different ways to approach recovery and there are different ways to think about recovery. Right. Well, well said, and I would say two points correctly to different ways to think of recovery and what an addiction is, is that, uh, let me lay out uh, for the listeners. SMART has four components. We don't do each component in each group. It depends on what we're working on. But the four components are how to maintain your motivation. So even if you make a mistake, you don't know, self-condemn and give up. Secondly, it's how to deal with urges and cravings. Thirdly is how to deal with controlling your emotions and behavior towards any life event, which is where the REBT, the Rational Motor Behavior, behavior Training, comes in, and how to live a balanced, healthy lifestyle. And those are, again, components which obviously can be helpful to anyone who wants to manage or control or change their life versus feeling they're helpless or powerless. And the other aspect would be is um, part of my career right now, which I'm thrilled with, is uh, a project in the world side of Chicago. We've been working now for three and a half years called the Above and Beyond Family Addiction Treatment Center that was started by a philanthropist named Brian Cressy, who's well-known in Chicago throughout the world. And basically, we offer all our services free. And the west side of Chicago is a pretty tough neighborhood and a sad, regrettable one in certain ways. And many of those people really do not receive any quality, quality health services at all. And they do now because of our project and also everything is for free. And it's truly vestibule, which simply means it's another term that's, that's used in addiction treatment, that when they come in, they have their assessment. And we basically have the primary counselor, which gives them about what groups might be, might be the most important for them to attend. But when SMART is being offered across the wall or in the 
next room, there's a AA meeting, and we want the client to choose and to pick what makes the most sense to them or what they think basically help them reach their goals. And so, therefore, basically, we're truly diverse and we're truly, again, respectful because we don't choose for that for the client. The client chooses what makes the most sense to them. And, again, the research shows, basically, which is common sense, that people are much more compliant and willing to work conscientiously towards something if they basically believe it makes sense to them. And that's called the best of the approach, which is very rare in America. Uh, indeed. <laughs> Terry, we're going to take a break. Folks, I am speaking with Terry London. Again, we're talking about uh, the Chicago Institute for Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, Above and Beyond, which is a wonderful program uh, in Chicago, and uh, Smart Recovery. Terry, I understand that you have a passion for music, particularly jazz. Do I understand correctly? Yes, you do. Is that since I was a teenager, and I am 66 years old, is that fortunately I got to hear some of the most important legendary blues musicians because they were here in Chicago, along with, again, there's a famous club called the Jazz Showcase, and that's Joe Siegel. And so even as a kid, I was attending live concerts and going here and there to different clubs. And at this particular juncture, is I have over, oh, about 12 to 15,000 CDs and LPs, which aren't exclusively jazz and blues, but to a great degree they are. And my favorite period of all times was, again, is with the late 50s, early 60s, which is not only bebop, but again, hard bop. But I love all kinds of variations of jazz. Terry, i got to ask you, because you know that there are people listening who have no idea what an LP is. What's an LP? <laughs> Long playing, which is our record. So what I was growing up is that they weren't 78, but they were 33 and one-third, and also, again, 45. And those, again, were records. However, family, again, there's been a, 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 a rebirth of vinyl, i.e. records, because many, many young people basically, again, do purchase, again, turntables and records. And they like to read the linear notes and have the whole experience of listening to an album versus just one selection off again streaming music again through their phone or their headphones. So they are falling back in love with what you have been in love with for a while. Right, right. And there's this old argument, and we'll sleep with that, that vinyl records still sounds better than digital. They sound different, and they both have their virtues. However, obviously digital is much more convenient because you push the button and, or you just you hit your uh, your laptop and you're listening to music where you have to put the tone arm and on the record and then pick it up when the record's done, etc. But they both have, again, their virtues and they both offer something if you're a music lover. How does music feed you? Clearly it does. What does it do for you? Well, it does for me and something I advocate besides, again, mindfulness and slowing down and those kinds of things that really do lead to, again, a much more, again, um, authentic happiness or, again, enjoying life more. I try to listen to music at least two, uh, a couple hours a day. And I'm often asked when I get up and I look at my vast collection, well, how do you choose what to listen to? And I guess in the other version of moments, just something pops in my head, let's listen to Hank Mobley, because I want to hear a saxophone, or Johnny, Johnny Griffin, another saxophone player. And I'll literally, because I have the luxury to do it, I will actually sit. Sometimes I walk around the house, I'll sit and listen to it with my eyes closed. And it takes me to a different place. It's good, I relax. But more importantly, it's so beautiful, the music to me, that I just get great pleasure of listening to, again, uh, that type, again, of, uh, of, of, of style of music. 
Terry, I, I have to thank you so much for sharing that part of you with us as well. How do folks who are interested in learning more about smart recovery, rational emotive therapy, all the things that you're doing, how does one get more information? Well, we do have a website, which is easy to get and get to, which is the Chicago Institute for Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy. It's a nice website. And in actuality, is that people could email me. And is it okay if I give my email address? Absolutely. Okay. It's T-E-R-R-Y-J-A-Y-L-O-N-D-O-N at gmail.com. And if anyone wants any information about materials, REBT in general, music, whatever it might be, if you'd like to communicate with your listeners. And, Terry, would you give us that email address one more time? Okay, and slowly. Yes. T-E-R-R-Y-J-A-Y-L-O-N-D-O-N, so Terry J. London at gmail.com. Terrific. Thank you again, Terry London, so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you. And this is a real pleasure to basically talk to you. All righty. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. I'd love to know your thoughts about today or any other programming, so please do send an email to me at Pamela, P A M E. E-L-A at mindtalk.org. That's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And remember, you can listen to Mind Talk on demand by going to several different platforms, including mindtalk.org, M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And when you get to the homepage at Mind Talk, you'll see all the platforms that are available to you. You can sign up for the program guide, for the free weekly gifts, all kinds of stuff. So I encourage you to take a look at mindtalk.org. And remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. 